Hello, welcome to the hot seat. I'm Martin Rogers, here with Professor Tony Travers to discuss the aftermath of the recent British general election. Welcome, Tony. Hello. So first of all, we now have a majority Conservative government for the first time since 1997. How did we get here and what should we expect from them? Well, I think the first thing to say is that I don't think even the Conservatives in the government mostly expected they'd be there, certainly not as a majority. And, you know, there'll be a lot of fallout from this, including, of course, an inquiry into the opinion polls. But as far as the government uh, is concerned itself, uh, what, we're going, what we're seeing here is that David Cameron is trying to signal a government that is one nation, and he's also bringing together a cabinet that is much more diverse than traditionally Conservative cabinets have been. And I think in doing that, he's trying to sort of inch his tanks towards Labour's lawns, really, to, to, to give them even more of a problem as they struggle with picking themselves up and starting again. So we're seeing a battle over the centre ground, led at the moment by the Conservatives. Well, I think that there's an element of moving to the centre ground. There are some Conservative policies that they're now going to implement, which look quite radical and not necessarily centrist, and probably they didn't expect necessarily to have to um, put in place. I mean, if they'd been in a, some kind of minority position, which I guess they expected, then things like the future of the Human Rights Act or an EU referendum might have been open to negotiation at that point. No negotiation now. So there are radical aspects of what uh, the Conservatives are going to do in government, which don't feel that centrist. They're kind of radical. Some of them sort of radical right, some of them just radical. But elsewhere, I think they are, the Conservatives are going to try and inch their way towards the centre ground uh, in order to make Labour's uh, discomfort even worse. So moving on to Labour, then, this has been a disastrous election for Labour, possibly the worst, oddly, the worst result where a party has increased its share of the vote. So how did we get to a position where Labour's share of the vote increased and yet they've been devastated in terms of seats? It's true. You, you wouldn't believe it from listening, even to the Labour Party after the election, but actually they did increase their vote by about 1.5% in Britain, slightly more than the Conservatives. The Conservatives increased their vote share, very unusual for a government in office, so it's worth noting that. But Labour did slightly better. The problem for Labour, we now know, is that... In all the other movements of votes, so the growth of the Scottish National Party's votes, the uh, UKIP 4 million votes, the collapse of the Liberal Democrats and all of the other things that were going on, the sum total of all that churn was better for the Conservatives than for Labour. That's what we now know. And in that sense, the Labour Party is going through an extraordinary war within itself about the future and about its positioning. But actually the result this time was more about the redistribution of everybody else's votes than it was about Labour as such. So before we moved on to Labour's internal politics, the economy was without doubt a defining factor in this election. Conservatives were seen as more competent and that's by and large what won them the day. But we've now seen negative inflation in this country. So what is negative inflation? What are the implications of it? Well, it's true that the Conservatives were seen as more competent on the economy, and they also had a leader who was more popular than the opposition leader. And we're now told by 
you know, the experts on these things, that if you have a party that's ahead in both economic competence and leader popularity, you win elections, which is interesting because that, that was not put quite like that before the election, but still. Um, looking ahead, I think that the arrival of deflation or negative inflation uh, it slightly depends how it turns out. I mean, if it's just on a few consumer items and airfares, which I think was very important in the recent uh, fall in prices, then you know the economy will still be going up in some places and down in others. It won't produce the kind of behaviour that economists worry about, which is if you get sustained deflation, people start delaying purchases, and that produces an economic downturn or slowdown in the economy, which is definitely not considered good. So I think we'll see from now on that uh, the Bank of England and the Treasury trying to give the impression, and they've been doing this a bit so far, it's only a blip, that there'll always be some inflation in the economy, because they'll definitely not want consumers to start thinking, oh, well, if we wait a year or two, this will be cheaper. So moving on to the Labour Party then, as you say, it's at war with itself at this point in a way that it hasn't been in previous recent history anyway, especially with Ed Miliband, there was a great show of unity of the party which seems to, arguably they're having a useful catharsis at the moment or tearing itself apart. So who are the main runners and riders for the leadership? Well, the there is now an interesting perception that unity, which was seen as the Labour... And, you know, you have to say for Ed Miliband, he had presided over a unified party for five years, that somehow that unity disguised underlying unpopularity for the Labour Party. And their result was bad, you know, despite what we were saying earlier, it wasn't. It was a bad result. They've had three results with, you know, 36 or 29 or 31% of the vote from 2005. So it was a bad result. And I think the, what we're now seeing is the contenders coming forward, all trying to uh, put their case for why Labour can't now get back to 40% of the vote. Um, and, of course, it doesn't look very pretty, and that's not helped by the fact that the re- relationship between the Labour Party and the trade unions, most particularly uh, Len McCluskey of Unite, uh, who you know fulfils the media's perfect... Um, sort of position as a sort of union baron who wants to control the Labour Party. So there's quite a lot of things moving at once. In in fairness to Labour, we're four and a half, five years out from the next general election. It would be as well to sort its leadership and, crucially, what it thinks of the world out now, you know, in the next 18 months to two years, and then give itself a run-in. Because remember in the run-in to the next general election, because Cameron has said he won't stand a third time uh, to be Prime Minister, the Conservatives will change their leader, let us say, in 2018, depending on what happens with the European referendum. Let's say it's 2018. So Labour's got to choose somebody who's not only sorting out all the problems now, but can fight a renewed Conservative leadership in the run-up to the 2020 general election. So the current Labour leadership contest lack some of the ideological battle that we've seen in the past. So the current contenders tend to be from the Blair or Brown camps, but without a distinct sort of left candidate. Does this mean Labour has settled on a vaguely centrist, slightly new Labour-ish view of the future in terms of this particular leadership contest? Certainly if you look at what the 
leading candidates are saying. This is um, you look at Andy Burnham, Yvette Cooper, uh, Liz Kendall and Mary Cray, the ones who we're seeing most of, almost without exception, they're taking as writ uh, the fact that the election was lost because the party had slipped too far to the left. I mean, that's simply kind of assumed all round. And therefore, um, what they are coming up with thus far is a sort of critique of that left-wing positioning that Ed Miliband had, uh, well, you know, seen now as left-wing positioning that Le- uh, Ed Miliband had come up with. So almost, yes, by implication, they are going for a more centrist position, not so far, of course, from David Cameron's One Nation position. And that means that they're going to have to work very hard in the uh, Labour leadership race to differentiate themselves and, you know, in the end, it's going to be, it'll, as always, and perhaps this is not the wrong thing, come down to what Labour members think or which of these individuals Labour members think is the person most likely to be able to win, not only against David Cameron now, but against a new leader later on in the parliament, a new Conservative leader later on in the parliament. That brings on quite nicely to the regional problems that Labour faced. So in Scotland, it's under threat from the SNP. In the north of England, it's under threat to UKIP. The Greens have taken votes from Labour in the South. All this time it hasn't made a great deal of headway against the Conservatives. Is it going to be possible? I don't want to make, you be, make yourself a hostage to fortune, but is that the battle that Labour's facing to differentiate itself in these areas or to look to have a unifying national strategy that can by itself unify these various different and divergent elements? Well... Even before this election, we knew that British politics was, uh, to some extent, disintegrating into a series of sub-national struggles between sometimes two parties, sometimes three, even sometimes four. It was not a Conservative versus Labour uh, fight everywhere with a swing from one to the other from time to time. Now, with that in mind, so in the south-west of England now, in fact, uh, there's very little other than Uh, the Conservatives, Scotland, very little other than the SNP. And, of course, for the Labour Party, who have to fight the SNP in Scotland, but the Conservatives in many parts of the North East, the North West, the East and West Midlands, and in London. Um, And then in London, they've got, uh, you know, the the Greens nibbling away at their vote as well, and in other parts of the South East, actually. So Labour do have a really challenging job here because they need to send out effectively a sort of slightly left-wing message in Scotland to fight the SNP, whereas in most of England they appear to have decided that they need a slightly more moderate centre-right message. Now, I think the only way they're going to deliver that is by a greater separation between the Labour Party in Scotland and the uh, Labour Party in England and Wales. But, you know, uh, Jim Murphy, who stood down as Labour leader in Scotland, had tried the beginning of that, but, you know, in the end, he didn't get very far, not because he didn't have a good... uh, It wasn't a good effort, it's just that it was too late. Uh, And now I think Labour's going to have to detach itself in Scotland, as the Conservatives rather successfully have done. You know, the Conservatives in Scotland, in some ways, have been quite successful out of the infighting admittedly over a large part of territory on the left. And so I think Labour will have to detach itself and let Scotland go its own way and then concentrate on England. But it's not going to be, not going to be easy. Before the election, the Lib Dems were the third largest party in the UK. Now they have eight MPs. What future have they got? 
The general election was bleak for the Liberal Democrats. It's not just the horrible numbers of losing all those MPs, including most of their best-known faces. But what they've discovered is that their core vote is 8%, whereas for the Labour Party and the Conservatives, their core vote, on the worst year you can imagine, is about 30 so eight is not a great core vote. And it means, I think, for the Liberal Democrats that they tried by going into government to suggest they could be an element in government, a grown-up party. And what they discovered is it went badly wrong. So they now face a future where they have effectively to live with the reality that either they're a third or fourth party of protest, they could build themselves up again in local government and in parliament as such a party, but they can't really go into government. So they can't, certainly in first-past-the-post voting system, become a party of government from now on. So it's a pretty bleak look forward from their point of view and years of rebuilding themselves. And since the election, UKIP have had a lot of headlines with their internal divisions, um, squabbles over the leadership and this sort of thing. So what is going on with... UKIP, is there greater battle now with the in-out referendum, the next local elections, European elections, general election? What position are they in? Well, UKIP have the advantage with the in-out referendum that they'll all be on one side, uh, unlike the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, where they'll almost certainly, certainly the Conservatives, big splits, they'll have to have a, effectively some kind of free vote to allow people, MPs, to go off and party campaigners to go off on their own. But UKIP, they'll all be on the same side. This is what they fought for, and it's their one big chance. Um, but, of course, beyond that, back in national politics, if they want to build themselves up over time, they face a challenge a bit like the Labour Party, really, because UKIP did well against the Conservatives in many parts of the south of England, particularly on the east of the south of England, and they did relatively well in the north of England against Labour. So one of the problems that they've got is how do they send out messages which are not purely we're a right, you know, we're way to the right of the Conservatives, because a number of the more strategically thoughtful UKIP members want to make sure they look like the Labour Party and compete with them in the urban north. So UKIP, like Labour, is going to have to come up with a way of messaging differently in different parts of the country. I mean, it's not unique to these two parties, but it's, you can see it particularly clearly in domestic politics for UKIP. So the other party that failed to achieve any sort of breakthrough was the Green Party. So what future have, have they got? I think the difficulty for the Greens is, with the exception of the widely admired Caroline Lucas, you know, their MP from Brighton, is that as a party, they're, you know, they're, they're often... Um, you know, green in every sense. That is, they are in favour of the environment, they are green, they want uh, environmental policy to get higher up the agenda, and it didn't much in the general election, you have to say. But in terms of their organisation on the ground, they bring the same kind of benign, uh, rather amateur approach that makes them attractive to some people to the organisation of the party. And in the end, if you're going to get anywhere in British politics, you, politics, you do need to be organised and ruthlessly organised and probably ruthless. And the Greens, I think, face that. They need to think about how they can begin to build up their councillor numbers by real organisation, getting their messages right, having a policy platform that makes sense 
and then you know, going into those places where they can begin to win seats from Labour in local government and then on to have a better chance, oh, and actually from Lib Dem places as well, but then go on uh, in the next general election to have a better chance of winning at that point. And the Greens tended to focus slightly less on their environmental emphasis or policies than on trying to outflank Labour to the left. Do you think that's likely to continue? There's no question that the Greens did position themselves to the left of Labour. And you know, this is the a sort of mirror image of the discussion we were having about the Labour Party, because you can see that from the Greens' point of view, people in the Labour Party who feel that the drift to the centre that's now, again, now about to happen means that those on the left of the Labour Party feel nobody represents them, probably quite like the idea of voting Green, because the Greens can take a proper left-of-centre view, as well as bringing environmental politics into uh, you know, British polity. So, actually, I don't think that's that difficult for the Greens. They can stay as a left-of-Labour party, as well as bringing uh, the, their environmental credentials back into politics. I think they could do that relatively easily, but they have to get the messages right uh, if they're to get it across in the particularly southern not only, but particularly southern urban and London uh, areas where they can do relatively well. Did very well in some of the London borough elections last year in gaining votes. So one party that did make a significant breakthrough, who we haven't talked about yet, is the SNP. So what future have the SNP got? Are they likely to press for a referendum? Are they happy with how things are at the moment? What effect will they have on the workings of government and politics more generally? It's hard not to believe that the SNP's policy from here on, after this extraordinary... I mean, they were the... You know, the Conservatives did well in the general election, but the SNP did better relatively, you have to say. Now, from their point of view, you have to assume that their next step is to have a huge success in the Scottish election that takes place next year. Uh, so that's a big prize for them. And then they can sort of build up step by step till they control almost all the high office... Uh, that they can possibly hold in Scotland at all levels of government and use that as a way of endlessly putting pressure on the UK political establishment whether or not they have another referendum. It's, a, it's an opportunity to create leverage all the time. Now, of course the SNP will want another referendum and I'm assuming that David Cameron will be going out of his way to avoid giving them an opportunity of wanting such a thing. So I think we'll see quite a lot of further devolution to Scotland, you know, give the Scots pretty well anything they want because it works from Cameron's point of view because he's keeping this, the SNP from being able to argue, well, David Cameron's obstructing our desire for greater autonomy. And in Scotland itself, that's what the SNP is being asking for. So you can see there'll, there'll be quite a big shift here. But in the longer term, of course the SNP will be thinking forward to an opportunity for another referendum. But they need to be sure that if they do that, they win it. Because if they had a second referendum, particularly if they had a second referendum and didn't do as well as in the first one, that would risk sending the whole thing into reverse. So for them, it's going to be positioning, using their Westminster seats in that way. At the moment, of course, they're involved, as, predict as was predictable, in a struggle with Labour, literally for physical um, places on the benches in the House of Commons. And I think that is, I'm afraid, from their and Labour's point of view, evidence of the shape of struggles to come. And a lot of the fighting will be on the opposition benches, not only across with the government. And finally, 
the council elections in some places were held on the same day as the general elections. So what happened in those? They've tended to go a bit under the radar given the general election. So what happened in the council elections? Well, personally, of course, I think council elections are at least as important as the general election. Uh, councils run all the services that most people believe affect their daily lives. And polling absolutely supports that that's how people do think. Now, uh, what happened was, of course, is that the unexpected Conservative surge at the national level translated through to the Conservatives doing really well in local government elections, winning hundreds of seats net, and also, as a result of that, retaking control of the local government association, which is very unusual for a party in government. Elsewhere, there were losses for Labour and the Liberal Democrats as a result of the voting on General Election Day. So, uh, in a sense, it was a good result from the Conservatives' point of view, bad uh, for Labour and the Liberal Democrats, in some ways mirror image of what happened in the general election. So how did UKIP do in the local elections? Well, UKIP, of course, in addition to winning more seats, uh, also took control of Thanet Council in Kent, the first one they control outright, and that in some ways was a consolation prize, uh, given how badly they'd done in terms of winning parliamentary seats where they just got one. And it will be interesting to see how they now govern, because that will be taken as a view more widely about their competence when it comes to future elections, and particularly future general elections. Thank you very much, Tony. You're off the hot seat. Thanks.